Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1237. How many lies before you belong to the lie? Part 10. This is being recorded on March 30th of the year 2022. Uh, before we get to the program itself, as always, three links. These are at the top of each written for the record description, article-length descriptions that I put together to basically en- enable people to uh, navigate the extremely pedantic format that I use. They are also at the top of each Food for Thought post, at the top left-hand side of the front page of the SpitfireList.com website. One of these links will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Terrafractal, some of which are made by other intelligent listeners. The second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. That's William Fred Mary Union. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, uh, sister station WFMU is podcasting the For the Record programs. And the last link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with basically uh, all of my life's 43 years worth of work on it, uh, basically everything that is on the SpitfireList.com website. Uh, it is available for a very nominal, small tax-deductible fee, and I get no money whatsoever from that. Included on that flash drive, by the way, is a small library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. Now, the title of the program, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie, comes from Mort Saul, the late brilliant political comedian who, not incidentally, was one of New Orleans D.A. Jim Garrison's investigators when he was investigating the assassination of President Kennedy. In his 1976 autobiography called Heartland, Mort Saul asked the question, how many lies before you belong to the lie. In other words, how many lies can you allow yourself to believe before you belong to the lie? Uh, it is a very interesting and relevant question, and I would twine with that uh, a quote paraphrased slightly from Adolf Hitler's uh, political manifesto, Mein Kampf, in which he observed that, quote, most people tell little lies. They would be ashamed to tell big ones. They would never credit others with such great impudence as the complete reversal of facts. Even explanations would long leave them in doubt and hesitation, as any trifling detail would dispose them to accept the thing as true. All good liars know this, and therefore stop at nothing to achieve this end. Uh, we are going to be talking about truth and lies. I might as well, by the way, add an old Turkish proverb to that. Uh, that Turkish proverb observes that, quote, he who tells the truth gets chased out of nine villages, which is, uh, sadly true, I'm afraid. Uh, we will be, we will be talking about truth and lies in this program. Uh, I've been 
basically navigating that dynamic for all of my roughly 43 years on the air. I've been attempting to deal successfully with the observation that George Orwell made in 1946 when he observed that, quote, political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give the appearance of solidity to pure wind. And I've been attempting to navigate through the islands, in some cases small continents of lies, in order to present the truth to uh, people in the <laughs> now, uh, vain hope that uh, what I thought was uh, the real America could be uh, perhaps restored. Uh, I think one of the confounding dynamics in that regard, at least for myself, was that I failed to recognize for many years that Americans mistake their love of comfort for love of freedom. And in this program, we are going to be talking about truth and lies with regard to the Ukraine war. I myself have never seen such a blizzard of lies. Uh, there is a very witty jazz song by the late Dave Fishberg, and he talks about being marooned, marooned, marooned in a blizzard of lies. In this case, propaganda, information warfare being crafted by the U.S. and Ukraine, and distorting things in a fundamental way. Uh, I've been sparred for accurate battlefield reportage. I know a little bit about military affairs. I did not think that the, Russia was actually going to invade Ukraine simply due to the small number of troops that they had uh, amassed or uh, had uh, positioned on Ukraine's borders, roughly 150,000. Ukraine is about the same size as Texas. And you just are not going to be able to do what we think of as an invasion of a country that size with 150,000 troops. I don't know how many more it would take, many more, maybe three times that many, I don't know. But uh, it turns out, uh, as we navigate through the blizzard of lies, as the late Dave Frischberg intoned, uh, that... What we were told was that the Russians said about their military adventure in Ukraine is essentially true. It is a limited military adventure with uh, limited uh, scope. Uh, it has not, I don't think, gone uh, anywhere near according to plan. However, what we are being told is simply not the truth. I was wondering about all of the reports of, uh, you know, Russian war crimes and indiscriminate bombing and shelling of civilian populations, etc. And yet the uh, pictures and the video footage coming out of Ukraine is tailored to what uh, Guy Debord referred to as the society of spectacle. We're presented with this uh, destroyed building or these dead bodies or these wounded people or these crying refugees. And we really have not been given a clear picture, literally speaking, of what is going on. I have a clue 
when there was a picture in the New York Times of uh, damage in Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, and in the distance, several miles away, there was a large plume of black smoke, and the buildings in the foreground, and for as far as could be seen in the photograph, was undamaged. I know a little bit about what urban landscapes that have been involved in modern industrial warfare look like, and they, they don't look like that. There was as important an article as I have seen in Newsweek magazine of March 22nd. It uh, is called, and uh, let me dig this out here, uh, the title of the article is Putin's Bombers Could Devastate Ukraine, But He's Holding Back. Here's why. This is by William M. Arkin, A-R-K-I-N, for Newsweek of March 22nd of 2022. And in this, some Pentagon analysts uh, speaking on condition of anonymity so that they could speak freely, fundamentally analyze and contradict, well, I should say fundamentally contradict through analysis of what we are basically being told. To give you some idea to uh, sum up what one of the analysts had to say, we need to understand Russia's actual conduct, says a retired Air Force officer, a lawyer by training who has been involved in approving targets for U.S. fights in Iraq and Afghanistan. The officer currently works as an analyst with a large military contractor advising the Pentagon and was granted anonymity in order to speak candidly. In the analyst's view, the Russian military has actually been showing restraint in its long-range attacks. As of the past weekend, and again this article was on uh, uh, March 22nd, as of the past weekend, in 24 days of conflict, Russia has flown some 1,400 strike sorties and delivered almost a 1,000 missiles. By contrast, the United States flew more sorties and delivered more weapons in the first day of the 2003 Iraq War. And uh, that in a nutshell, is the essence of the article. I'm going to uh, present some selected uh, excerpts that feature the meat of the content of the article. Again, it is Putin's bombers could devastate Ukraine, but he's holding back. Here's why by William M. Orkin of Newsweek magazine, March 22nd of 2022. Uh, beginning some of the excerpts. Russia's conduct in the brutal war tells, beginning again, Russia's conduct in this brutal war tells a different story than the widely accepted view that Vladimir Putin is intent on demolishing Ukraine and inflicting maximum civilian damage, and it reveals the Russian leader's strategic balancing act. Instead, his goal is to take enough territory on the ground to have something to negotiate with while putting the government of Ukraine in the position where they have to negotiate. And skipping down again. The destruction is massive, unquote. A senior analyst working at the Defense 
Intelligence Agency, or DIA, tells Newsweek, especially when compared with what Europeans and Americans are used to seeing. But the analyst says the damage associated with a contested ground war involving peer opponents should not blind people to what is really happening. The analyst requested anonymity in order to speak about classified matters. Quote, The heart of Kiev has barely been touched, and almost all of the long-range strikes have been aimed at military targets. Unquote. And uh, another excerpt here. In the capital, most observable to the west, Kiev city authorities say that some 55 buildings have been damaged and that 222 people have died since February. And again, there is a lot of exaggeration and outright fabrication by the Ukrainian authorities. But even if we take this at face value, which may be accurate, one more time, in the capital most observable to the west, Kiev city authorities say that some 55 buildings have been damaged and that 222 people have died since February 24th. It is a city of 2.8 million people. Again, quoting one of the analysts. We need to understand Russia's actual conduct, says a retired Air Force officer, a warrior by training who has been involved in approving targets for U.S. flights in Iraq and Afghanistan. The officer currently works as an analyst with a large military contractor advising the Pentagon and was granted anonymity in order to speak candidly. If we merely convince ourselves that Russia is bombing indiscriminately or that it is failing to inflict more harm because its personnel are not up to the task or because it is technically inept, then we are not seeing the real conflict. In the analyst's view, though the war has led to unprecedented destruction in the South and East, the Russian military has actually been showing restraint in its long-range attacks. As of the past weekend, in 24 days of conflict, Russia has flown some 1,400 strike sorties and delivered almost a 1,000 missiles. By contrast, the United States flew more sorties and delivered more weapons in the first day of the 2003 Iraq War. The vast majority of the airstrikes are over the battlefield, with Russian aircraft providing, quote, close air support to ground forces. The remainder, less than 20%, according to U.S. experts, have been aimed at military airfields, barracks, and supporting depots. Uh, I'm going to interrupt uh, briefly to just add a couple of uh, uh, pieces of information. One of the things that the analysts point out is that in Russian military tactical doctrine, the Air Force is subordinate to the ground forces, and they are basically uh, filling the role of flying artillery. Something I would point out as we hear all of the uh, outright propaganda and inflammatory rhetoric is that Russia spends roughly one-twelfth as much on defense as the U.S. One-twelfth. One of the dangers 
in the conflict is precisely because they do not have anywhere near the military capacity that the U.S. has. The U.K., for example, Britain, spends more on defense than Russia. Uh, nuclear weapons, including small ones, uh, enter into the Russian uh, defense strategy uh, relatively early on, precisely because they do not have uh, the conventional forces that the U.S. has, and that's just the U.S. and Russia, uh, leaving aside the other NATO countries. One of the dangers is that uh, if uh, things get out of hand, and there are, as we will see, uh, forces pushing that in no uncertain terms, well, we may very well be aiming to World War III. One of the things that I think was a very, I think is a very valuable contribution made by these military analysts speaking on condition of anonymity is that they point out that if uh, we take the propaganda that Putin's a monster and he's indiscriminately bombing civilian areas and all this stuff, uh, it could very easily make it impossible to reach a settlement and could ultimately lead to uh, a wider and possibly catastrophic war. I think a big tip of the hat uh, is in order to these analysts. Uh, repeating the last uh, excerpt and then moving on. As of the past weekend, in 24 days of conflict, Russia has flown some 1,400 strike sorties and delivered almost a 1,000 missiles. By contrast, the U.S. flew more sorties and delivered more weapons in the first day of the 2003 Iraq War. The vast majority of the airstrikes are over the battlefield, with Russian aircraft providing close air support to ground forces. The remainder, less than 20%, according to U.S. experts, has been aimed at military airfields, barracks, and supporting depots. I know it's hard to swallow that the carnage and destruction could be much worse than it is, says the DIA analyst, but that's what the facts show. This suggests, to me at least, that Putin is not intentionally attacking civilians, that perhaps he is mindful that he needs to limit damage in order to leave an out for negotiations. Russia began its invasion of Ukraine on February 24th with an air and missile attack targeted against some 65 airfields and military installations. On the first night, at least 11 airfields were attacked. Some 50 additional military installations and air defense sites were hit, including 18 early warning radar facilities. In these initial salvos, a total of some 240 weapons were expended, including 166 air, ground, and sea-based missiles. Though there were a good number of longer-range bombers flying from Russian soil, most of the airstrikes were shorter-range, and most of the missiles launched were also short-range types of the Iskander NATO SS-26 Stone and Toshka NATO SS-21 Scarab classes. The breadth of the attack, north to south, east to west, led many observers to compare the opening bombardment to a pattern seen in U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, where large salvos concentrating on air defenses and airfields had the intent of establishing air superiority, a shock strike 
that would then open the eyes for follow-on bombing at will. Excuse me, one more time. The breadth of the attack, north to south, east to west, led many observers to compare the opening bombardment to a pattern seen in U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, where large silos concentrating on air defenses and airfields had the intent of establishing air superiority, a shock strike that would then open the skies for follow-on bombing at will. When it came to Ukraine, not only did many observers, quote, mirror image, unquote, Russian objectives to match U.S. practices, they also made premature and incorrect observations that Russia was fighting such a conflict. Even before Russian ground forces reached Kiev and other cities, this narrative goes, the air and missile forces would have so damaged Ukraine, including its communications and other infrastructure needed for defenses to continue working, that it would secure victory on the ground. Russia has not achieved any of these goals. Though the outlines of its first might of strikes suggested an air superiority campaign and an intense and focused destruction of Ukraine's military. After a month of war, continued targeting tells a different story. Russia still has not completely knocked out the Ukrainian Air Force, nor has it established air superiority. Airfields away from the battlefield are mostly still operable, and some in major cities have not been bombed at all. The fabric of communications in the country continues to operate intact. There has been no methodical Russian attack on transportation routes or bridges to impede Ukrainian ground defenses or supplies. This is one of the reasons so many refugees have been able to successfully flee the country. Though electrical power plants have been hit, they are all in contested territory or near military installations and deployments. None have been intentionally targeted. In fact, there has been no methodical bombing campaign to achieve any systemic outcome of a strategic nature. Air and missile strikes, which initially seemed to tell one story, have almost exclusively been in direct support of ground forces. Russia did not bomb stationary air defense emplacements protecting cities. One more time. This is important. Well, it all is important, but this particularly. Russia did not bomb stationary air defense emplacements protecting cities. U.S. analysts say Putin's generals were particularly reluctant to attack urban targets in Kiev. As a result, Regardless of the Kremlin's plans whether Russia was actually seeking air superiority or intended to limit damage in Kiev, there is no question that Putin has had to revise the long-range attack plan. Over the course of almost four weeks, missiles fired at Kiev have been scarce. Ukrainian media have reported just more than a dozen incidents involving Russian crews and ballistic missiles intercepted over the city and its closest suburbs since February 24th. And all of those, U.S. experts say, have been clearly headed for legitimate military targets. 
Then a bit of uh, triumphal propaganda from the Atlantic Council, again one of the major uh, right-wing think tanks featuring OUN input and financing. The fact that mobile S-300 SAM systems are still operating is a powerful indictment of Russia's ability to conduct dynamic or time-sensitive targeting, the Atlantic Council asserted this week in a military brief. The Defense Intelligence Agency analyst disagrees, quote, For whatever reason, clearly the Russians have been reluctant to strike inside the urban megalopolis of Kiev. Yes, they might not be up to the U.S. task in dynamic targeting or in establishing air superiority, but this is the Russian Air Force, subordinate to the ground forces. And this war is different. It's being fought on the ground, where everything strategic that Russia might destroy in front of its forces, bridges, communications, airfields, etc., also becomes unusable for them as they move forward. From the very beginning of airstrikes, both U.S. analysts agree, some of the limited air and missile attacks have also had some internal logic. Take, for instance, the airfield of Hostomel, northwest of Kiev. It wasn't directly attacked because Russia initially used it to land paratroopers with the hope of advancing to the capital city. Instead, the airfield and the surrounding countryside became the scene of a major battle as Ukrainian forces mounted a fierce defense. In the south, Kherson Airport also wasn't attacked. The reason has become clear. Russia is now using that very airfield to stage its own forces. In Kiev, only one of the major airports was struck in Borispil. That's B-O-R-Y-S-P-I-L. By the way, I am probably butchering the Ukrainian pronouncements here, but, but uh, do the best I can. In Kiev, only one of the major airports was struck in Borispil. The news media reported that the, quote, international airport was hit, but the dual civil military airfield is also home to Ukraine Air Force's 15th transport wing, including the presidential PU-134 jet that might have been used by Ukrainian President Zelensky if he chose to evacuate. The other major civilian Kiev airport, Zhulyami, has never been attacked nor had two civil airports in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city, been attacked. The strikes inside major cities, Kiev, Kharkiv, and Odessa, had not only been limited, but the retired U.S. Air Force officer points out that even when long-range aviation, Russian Tu-95 Bayer bombers delivering crews and hypersonic missiles had flown strikes in western Ukraine away from the battlefield. They have been directed at military targets. And there has been strategic logic, at least in Russia's view. Quote, They've been signaling, the retired officer says, Western airfields at Lutsk, Lvov, and Ivano-Frankivsk were hit because they were the most likely stepping stones for donated fighter aircraft coming in from Poland and Eastern European countries. When those targets were prepped, he adds, there was also talk of a Western no-fly zone where those Western airfields might have been essential. 
And then the so-called peacekeeper training ground in Yeradig was hit because it was the place where the, quote, International Legion, unquote, was to have trained, the officer says. Moscow even announced that. Russia, the BIA analyst adds, has also been careful not to cause escalation on the Belarusian or Russian territory or to provoke NATO. Despite operating from Belarus, Russian ground and air operations have mostly been confined to the southeastern portion of the country. And the attacks in western Ukraine have been careful to avoid NATO airspace. For example, the Ukrainian airbase at Lutsk, home to the 204th Aviation Wing and just 70 miles south of the Belarus, was attacked March 13th by long-range bombers. The missiles were launched from the south from over the Black Sea. People are talking about Grozny in Chechnya and Aleppo in Syria and the raising of Ukrainian cities, unquote, a second retired U.S. Air Force senior officer tells Newsweek. But even in the case of southern cities, where artillery and rockets are within range of populated centers, the strikes seem to be trying to target Ukrainian military units, many of which, by necessity, are operating from inside urban areas. He and other analysts who spoke to Newsweek argue not only that the destruction is only a small fraction of what is possible, but also that they see a glimmer of hope in a fact-based analysis of what Russia has done. One more time, because this is critical. It also contrasts to what our uh, bloody propagandized media and the completely over-the-top Ukrainian media, and as we'll see, the completely weaponized media of the UK are doing. One more time. He and the other analysts who spoke to Newsweek argued not only that the destruction is only a small fraction of what is possible, but also that they see a glimmer of hope in a fact-based analysis of what Russia has done. The second senior officer says that Putin obviously continues to apply pressure against Kiev, but Russia hasn't shifted much of its own forces and has continued to back off bombing in the city proper. In that, maybe he is leaving room for a political settlement, the officer says. Well, the officer says one more time. The second senior officer says that Putin obviously continues to apply pressure against Kiev, but Russia hasn't shifted much of its own forces and has continued to back off bombing in the city proper. In that, maybe he is leaving room for a political settlement, the officer says. I'm frustrated by the current narrative that Russia is intentionally targeting civilians, that it is demolishing cities, and that Putin doesn't care. Such a distorted view stands in the way of finding an end before true disaster hits or the war spreads to the rest of Europe, the second U.S. Air Force officer says one more time, because as we're about to see, there are a lot of forces. Uh, the Azov manifestation in Ukraine, proper Ukrainian media, uh, the completely weaponized BBC the grotesque New York Times, which is in full Warren Report mode. They, they were the publishers of the untenable Warren Report, a bald-faced, 
stinking lie and uh, physically impossible in all its major aspects, and also, by the way, not incidentally, a false flag operation in which Russia was to a large extent blamed, uh, although ultimately they uh, dialed down and made Lee Harvey Oswald, who killed nobody, uh, out to be a lone nut. One more time. I'm frustrated by the current narrative that Russia is intentionally targeting civilians, that it is demolishing cities, and that Putin doesn't care. Such a distorted view stands in the way of finding an end before true disaster hits or the war spreads to the rest of Europe, the second U.S. Air Force officer says. Heartbreaking images make it easy for the news to focus on the war's damage to buildings and lives. But in proportion to the intensity of the fighting or Russia's capacity, things could indeed be much worse. I know that the news keeps repeating that Putin is targeting civilians, but there is no evidence that Russia is intentionally doing so, says the DI analyst. Again, quoting, In fact, I'd say that Russia could be killing thousands more civilians if it wanted to. Uh, indeed, and something that is, uh, well, I'll hold off some of my own ruminations about military tactics. Uh, I suspect that the Russian losses have been a good deal higher than they otherwise would have been if uh, the gloves were off, for example. Uh, there have been considerable Russian losses in aircraft and armor to uh, shoulder-fired uh, man pads or stinger missiles, uh, infantry uh, anti-aircraft missiles and uh, anti-armor missiles. Uh, artillery is a good way to neutralize that. However, if you start laying down rolling artillery barrages, uh, you're going to be killing a lot of civilians and destroying a lot of infrastructure, and that has not been done. However, our media and a lot of collaborating elements were really looking at an insidious, almost satanic form of combined arms in which Fundamental distortion or outright fabrication is being combined with weaponized journalism in order to present an, an inflamed, propagandized picture of the war, which in turn it may very well be driving national security policy. Uh, next, we're going to talk about one of the apparent false flag operations staged by the Azov Regiment, which is defending the southern city of Mariupol. Uh, no international journalists are left in Mariupol, and it appears even uh, elements of the city government, including the mayor, have in all probability fled as well. There was a much-publicized alleged Russian bombing or shelling, pick your pick, of a theater in Mariupol that was sheltering civilians. That, in fact, appears to have been a provocation that was staged by the Azov uh, Regiment, uh, one of the Nazi military formations in Ukraine, which supposedly has no Nazis. We're going to talk, by the way, about Biden's direct role in the ascent of the OUNB successor nations in Ukraine, as well as networking between the Biden family and Hunter Biden, uh, Zelensky, uh, the 
oligarch Kolomorsky, who not only financed Zelensky, but also financed the Azov Battalion, and had the controlling interest in Burisma, the Ukrainian national gas company, on whose board of directors Hunter Biden sat. By the way, his term on the board uh, expired in 2019, but as we will see in our next program, maybe two, we'll see uh, how time goes. Hunter Biden was apparently involved in soliciting business for some of the Pentagon Finance Biological Laboratories in Ukraine. And in fact, uh, an article by the right-wing, uh, right-of-center Daily Mail in the UK noted that, it, quote, at least some of the Russian charges about biological warfare appear to be true, and Hunter Biden is right in the center of it, and it definitely intersects the EcoHealth Alliance and activities involving what I call the Oswald Institute of Virology or the Wuhan Institute of Virology. However, back to Ukraine, back to Mariupol, back to the theater false flag operation. This is an article by someone who's doing some of the best work on uh, this war, at least in the U.S. media, and that maybe could be considered damning with false praise. This is by Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone of March 18th of 2022. Was bombing of Mariupol fever staged by Ukrainian Azov extremists to trigger NATO intervention? And again, I'm going to read some key excerpts of this. A closer look reveals that local residents in Mariupol had warned three days before the March 16th incident that the theater would be the site of a false flag attack launched by the openly neo-Nazi Azov battalion, which controlled the building and the territory around it. Civilians that escaped the city through humanitarian corridors have testified that they were held by Azov as human shields in the area, and that Azov fighters detonated parts of the theater as they retreated. Despite claims of a massive Russian airstrike that reduced the building to ashes, all civilians appeared to have escaped with their lives. Video of the attack on the theater remains unavailable at the time of publication. Only photographs of the damaged structure can be viewed. The Russian Ministry of Defense has denied conducting an airstrike on the theater, asserting that the site had no military value and that no sorties were flown in the area on March 16th. Kiev's most emotionally potent allegation so far, that Russia deliberately bombed innocent civilians cowering inside the theater, has been undercut by testimonies from Mariupol residents and a widely viewed telegram message explicitly foreshadowing a false flag attack on the building. On March 7th, an Azov battalion commander named Denis Pokopenko appeared on camera from Mariupol with an urgent message. Published on Azov's official YouTube channel, and delivered to in, in English over the sound of occasional artillery launches, Pokopenko declared that the Russian military was carrying out a, quote, genocide, unquote, against the population of Mariupol, which happens to be 40% Russian. One more time. Pokopenko declared that the Russian military was carrying out a, quote, genocide, unquote, against the population of Mariupol, which happens to be 40% ethnic Russian. Pokopenko 
then demanded that Western nations, quote, create a no-fly zone over Ukraine supported with modern weapons, unquote. It was clear from Pokopenko's plea that Azov's position was growing more dire by the day. As Russia's military rapidly degraded Azov positions through the second week of March of 2022, Azov soldiers apparently directed elderly civilians as well as women and children into the wardrobe hall of the Donetsk Academic Regional Drama Theater in Mariupol. On March 12th, a chilling message appeared on the Telegram channel of Dmitry Steffen, S-T-E-S-A-T-N, a correspondent reporting from Mariupol for the Russian newspaper Komsomolskaya Pravda. According to Steffen, local residents told him an alleged Russian bombing at the Turkish-built Kanuni Sultan Suleiman Mosque in Mariupol that day was a false flag intended to drag Turkey into the war, unquote, and warned that a false flag attack on the Mariupol drama theater was imminent, unquote. On March 12th, Western outlets like the Associated Press repeated Ukrainian government claims that the Turkish mosque in Mariupol had been shelled by Russia with 80 civilians inside, including children. However, Turkish state media revealed that the Ukrainian government had misled Western reporters. The Kanumi Sultan Suleiman Mosque was not only fully intact, it had never been hit by Russian fire. Quote, our mosque remains undamaged, unquote. Ismail Hashloglu, head of the mosque's association, told Turkey's Andalou agency on March 12th. Just hours after Zelensky's address, news arrived directly from the Azov Battalion's press department that Russia had bombed a theater in Mariupol. With a monopoly over information from the scene of the supposed attack, with no other news outlets present, Azov's press department disseminated photos of the destroyed building to media across the world. One day before the bombing on March 15th, a group of military-aged men were photographed in front of the Mariupol fever. No women were visible anywhere in the image. The men can be seen placing pallets against the side of the building, ferrying large objects across the theater grounds, and cutting down a fir tree. According to Human Rights Watch's report on the FIFA incident, which contained no local testimony gathered after the attack, the men were, quote, cooking food on an open fire and collecting water in buckets, unquote. As seen below, pallets and other objects were piled against the same area of the building hit by an explosive charge the following day. While the theater appeared to have been heavily damaged, quote, they bombed the building to ashes, unquote, claimed Azov's Ponomarenko. It turned out that not one person was killed by the blast. By the way, the Kiev Independent is financed by the National Endowment for Democracy, one of the U.S. intelligence uh, fronts that was founded by the late William Casey. One more, and uh, they, they concluded about this one more time. It turned out I'll read the whole sentence here. While the theater appeared to have been heavily damaged, quote, they bombed the building to ashes, claimed Azov's Panamarenko. It turned out that not one person was killed by the blast. It's a miracle, the Kiev Independent reporter chirped, unquote. Further, 
ABC claimed the fever had been hit by Russian artillery shelling, not, quote, an airdrop Russian bombist, Pomerenko, and many others have claimed. Ukrainian media, meanwhile, has expressed confusion over the incident. The outlet 0629 has attempted to explain away the mysterious disappearance of the thousand civilians said to have been in the theater by claiming they were evacuated to the city of Zaporizhia a day before the supposed attack. Quote, we are waiting for the official verified information and do not rush to conclusions, the paper declared. When Azov soldiers were leaving the building, they destroyed the drama theater. The Azov fighters were simply hiding behind us, one refugee told the reporter. We were their human shields. That's it. They were breaking everything all around us. They were not letting us outside. We spent 15 days in the basement with kids. They gave us no water, nothing. Describing how the Azov battalion placed its tanks in front of local bomb shelters, the woman offered a revealing detail. When they were leaving, she said, referring to the Azov battalion, they destroyed the drama theater. People with shrapnel were brought to us. Numerous evacuees echoed the woman's testimony about Azov holding Mariupol civilians as hostages and said they were targeted with gunfire as they escaped through humanitarian corridors. Quote, they burned everything, an elderly woman recalled to Russian media. They bombed my whole apartment. They broke in and were sitting there making Molotov cocktails. I wanted to come in to take things, but they told me, no, you have no business here. That, again, was bombing of Mariupol theater staged by Ukrainian Azov extremists to trigger NATO intervention by Max Blumenthal from the gray zone of March 18th of 2022. Uh, what we're going to look at next is, once again, uh, about Mariupol and, in particular, the destruction of the theater. Uh, what this talks about, however, is the weaponized coverage by the BBC using a right-wing Ukrainian named Arisha Kimiak, I'm probably mispronouncing, O-R-Y-S-I-A is her first name, K-H-I-M-I-A-K is her last name, and it talks not only about the destruction of the theater, but it also talks at considerable length about how the BBC's coverage not only of the Ukraine war but uh, Russia in general has basically not only been weaponized but has been uh, basically made subservient to MI6 British foreign intelligence. This article also is by Max Blumenthal, also from the Grey Zone, of March 25th of 2022. It's titled, BBC Correspondent Fixer Shaping Ukraine War Coverage is PR Operative Involved in War Messaging Tool, again by Max Blumenthal, from the Gray Zone of March 25th of 2022. Excerpts of the article, we may not have time to finish this, so I will uh, pick this up in our next program. BBC reports on the suspicious destruction of a theater in the Ukrainian city of Mariupol were co-authored by a Ukrainian PR agent tied to a firm at the forefront of her country's information warfare efforts. Before serving as a fixer 
and reporter for the BBC in Ukraine, Arisha Kimyak handled public relations for a startup called Reface, which created what the Washington Post called a reality-distorting app now serving as a, quote, a, quote, kind of Ukrainian war messaging tool. According to her LinkedIn profile, Kimiak was the director of PR for Reface until October of 2021. While working that job, Kimiak says she built long-term relationships with editors and media representatives. She has also overseen a PR course for the Kiev-based Projector Institute, whose website currently greets visitors with the slogan, Glory to Ukraine. By the way, that was the uh, salute of uh, Stefan Bondera's troops in World War II. It is now the official salute of the Ukrainian military and police. One more time. She has also overseen a PR course for the Kiev-based Projector Institute, whose website currently greets visitors with the slogan, Glory to Ukraine, We Will Win. Reface says its employees have joined, quote, the territorial defense units and volunteers, and several teams have also joined the cyber troops to fight Russian propaganda, unquote. In other words, members of the organization are actually fighting in Ukraine. With her wealth of media contacts, Kimiak now plays an instrumental role in shaping BBC's coverage of the Russian-Ukrainian war. She has even shared a byline with the network's Lavo-based correspondent, Hugo Bashega, B-A-C-H-E-G-A, co-authoring reports focused on demonstrating Russia's capability for the bombing of the Mariupol Dramatic Theater. One more time. With her wealth of media contacts, Kimiak now plays an instrumental role in shaping BBC's coverage of the Russian-Ukrainian war. She has even shared a byline with the network's Lavo-based correspondent, Hugo Bashega, co-authoring reports demonstrating Russian culpability for the bombing of the Mariupol Dramatic Theater. Kimiak broadcasts her political bias in her Twitter bio, stating that she is, quote, a fixer in the vogue for journalists, for reporters who show honest image of Russian war against Ukraine. Ukraine will resist. Kimiak's Twitter background references the Snake Island standoff, which was widely reported by mainstream Western media outlets and heralded as a testament to Ukrainian military bravery. According to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, 13 Ukrainian border guards defending an island base called Snake Island against the Russian Navy uh, said basically, Russian warship, go F yourself, with the soldiers' final words, or so the story went. Those same Ukrainian guards ultimately turned up uh, one more time, that the Ukrainian guards ultimately turned up alive as Russian captives. The entire story of courage under fire, including the Snake Island defenders' famous last words, was a myth, one of so many stories fabricated or heavily distorted by pro-Ukraine elements that they have become impossible to count. On the Twitter page, of the PR agent turned BBC correspondent Kimiak, the foamy Snake Island standoff is still treated as a real historical event. On her Twitter 
timeline. Meanwhile, Kimiak takes credit for the BBC's reports on the destruction of the Mariupol dramatic fever. She and her co-author, Beshega, have yet to respond to a request for comment from the Grey Zone. However, as this reported retail, the Mariupol fever was controlled by retreating Azov militants who were desperately appealing for military intervention by NATO. Several evacuees have claimed Azov detonated the fever to create the impression of a Russian attack that might draw the West into the war. Meanwhile, video of the alleged Russian attack on the fever has yet to materialize, and images of the supposed rescue of survivors or mass deaths at the scene remain unavailable. As this reported detailed, the Mariupol fever was controlled by retreating Azov militants who were desperately appealing for military intervention by NATO. Several evacuees have claimed Azov detonated the fever to create the impression of a Russian attack that might draw the West into the war. Meanwhile, video of the alleged Russian attack on the fever has yet to materialize, and images of the supposed rescue of survivors or mass deaths at the scene remain unavailable. On March 25th, Nine days after the incident, CNN broadcast what it said was the first footage of the attack on the fever. The footage seen below, and this is in the, this will be in the written description for the program. The footage seen below was only 20 seconds long and showed a small group of civilians slowly ambling down a staircase to the ground floor of the building. A narrator can be heard behind the camera repeatedly referring to an airstrike, but claiming that those on the first floor had survived. The video appeared to have been shot sometime after the attack, as none of the smoldering present in video taken in the aftermath of the explosion could be seen. That video, seen below and taken on March 16th, shows a smoking building with no rescuers or any people on site. CNN has also claimed that 300 civilians were killed inside the theater. The BBC also echoed the official Ukrainian claim of 300 dead, but acknowledged, quote, communication with Mariupol remains difficult, so it is hard to independently verify information, unquote. Both networks relied on just a single source for the dramatic allegation. Petra Andriyashenko, an advisor to the mayor of Mariupol who recently saluted the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion as courageous, quote, defenders, unquote, of his city. The official evidence? According to the BBC, officials were able to check the death toll because they have a record of who was in the fever before the missile strike and have spoken to survivors. Curiously, partisan Ukrainian reporters claimed a day after the attack that everyone sheltering inside the fever's basement had miraculously survived. Also on March 17th, Ukrainian government ombudsman Ludmila Denisova stated on Telegram, the fever building withstood the impact of a high-powered air bomb and protected the lives of people hiding in the bomb shelter. Among the most curious aspects of the incident of the fever was the disappearance of all vehicles from the parking lot in front of the structure hours before the explosion occurred. It seems that they had been removed in order to avoid being damaged by the expected blast. 
on March 17th, the day after the FIFA incident, Beshoga and Chimiak reported that, quote, according to Ukrainian authorities, the FIFA was bombed by Russia, unquote. Their only local source said she left the FIFA one day before the building was destroyed when most, if not all those on the grounds, appeared to leave. We knew we had to run away because something terrible would happen soon, unquote, she told the BBC. The BBC reporter and PR agent turned fixer co-authored a March 22nd follow-up article quoting two local witnesses who said they were near the theater when a massive blast occurred. Both delivered cinematic accounts, which open-source intelligence analyst Michael Cobbs calls into question. The really questionable part of the story is the step-by-step narration of a process that in reality lasts maybe a tenth of a second. Here, however, a man has the time to throw himself into the path of a blast and flying splinters. The male witness said he saw plenty of people bleeding, unquote. However, in a time when nearly every person carries a smartphone, video of the harrying scene he described has yet to surface. Finally, the BBC turned to Mackenzie Intelligence, a private contractor founded by a former UK military intelligence officer to hypothesize that a Russian 500-pound laser-guided missile was used to destroy the fever. But as the open-source analyst Cobbs pointed out, the center of destruction sits right in the middle of the stage, so two dumb bombs can't possibly be to blame, unquote. And the conclusion is significant. As the Grey Zone reported in February of 2021, the British broadcaster's non-profit arm BBC Media Action participated in a covert UK foreign commonwealth and development program explicitly designed to, quote, weaken Russia. As seen below, that institution's documents revealed that BBC Media Action proposed working through a private British contractor called Actus, A-K-T-I-S, to cultivate and grow pro-NATO media in conflict areas like the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine, now the focal point of fighting between pro-Russian forces and the Ukrainian military. The BBC's Secret Information Warfare Initiative had turned the network into an arm of British intelligence operating as an actor in a foreign conflict with its broadcast media arm was simultaneously claiming to cover in an objective manner. One more time. The BBC's Secret Information Warfare Initiative had turned the network into an arm of British intelligence operating as an actor in a foreign conflict, which its broadcast media arm was simultaneously claiming to cover in an objective manner. Indeed, and uh, we'll talk more about this dynamic, and we'll also see whether this weaponized media coverage leads to a third world war. This, however, concludes for the record program number 1237, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie? We'll soon find out, perhaps. This is, the, uh, <laughs> the title once again, How Many Lies Before You Belong to the Lie, Part 10, being recorded on March 30th of the year 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.